Hi, I'm Katie. And I'm Dr. Cubitt. We're going beyond the barn. Come join us on this journey as we bust equine and livestock nutrition myths and interview some of the most intriguing experts in the country. We'll go behind the scenes of how premium Western quality forage is grown and brought to your favorite farm and ranch retail store. We're so glad you're here. Welcome back to Beyond the Barn podcast, Dr. Cubit. Thanks for jumping in here again with me today. Glad to be back. So today we have a part two coming your way. In episode seven, we chatted a little bit about alfalfa misconceptions, questions people have about alfalfa. Um, It could be just commentary or maybe even advice that people have given you about alfalfa. So a lot of people have shared either their comments or questions and they just are trying to get answers about alfalfa, whether it's something good to be feeding your horses or whether it's something to be avoiding. So this is our part two. And I would like to just go ahead and jump right in if you're ready to go. Absolutely. So this first question that we have is on ulcers. Have heard alfalfa is good for preventing ulcers or helpful for mitigating ulcers. Is this true? Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of research has been done looking at alfalfa and its effects on decreasing ulcer scores in horses. And the premise behind it is gastric ulcers are caused by excess acid in the horse's stomach. So you've got two distinct regions in the horse's stomach. The top region we'll call the non-protected region and the bottom section we'll call the protected region. If you imagine in your head a bean, a kidney bean shape, and that's kind of the shape of the stomach with the esophagus coming in the top and the small intestine going out the bottom. And acid is continually being produced in that bottom part of the horse's stomach. There are little cells down there called parietal cells that are continually secreting acid because the horse in the wild is meant to be a grazing animal. So he doesn't have any kind of signals that turn on or turn off the secretion of acid. So constantly being secreted. And then unfortunately, what happens is there is a mucus coating along that bottom part of the stomach that protects that tissue from the acid that's being secreted. But if your horse is constantly grazing, they're swallowing saliva, which number one starts to buffer the stomach acid, but the actual forage sits in the stomach and it just provides a physical mat that sits on the acid as well as diluting that stomach acid. So it's all kind of the acid is there to break down the forages right. and the food that the horse is eating. But in the, the perfect world, it doesn't cause a problem. Unfortunately, in our management systems, our horses spend a lot of time with nothing in their stomach. So that acid builds up and builds up and it splashes up onto that non-protected region that doesn't have that mucus coating and causes gastric ulcers. And in, in worst case too, we can actually get ulcers in that protected region down the bottom because that mucus coating gets worn away. And so the premise behind alfalfa is obviously the issue is too much acid or too much strong acid. So how do you mitigate acid? Go back to high school chemistry and to dilute an acid, we need to add a base. And so calcium, which Mm -hmm. is very prevalent in alfalfa, is basic. And so when you put the base in the acid, you neutralize that acid from being on a pH scale that strong acid is between a one and a two or a two. And then you add the alfalfa that's got a lot of calcium in it and it neutralizes 
that asset. And now we've got an environment where the asset sits between a four and a seven, which is much, much safer for the horse. So alfalfa 100% has benefits for horses with gastric ulcers. The research showed that in stressful situations, young horses eating alfalfa certainly significantly decrease their ulcer score. And so what can kind of cause ulcers in general? I mean, do you find that it's more because of management itself? Is it the type of horse in general is more prevalent or stressful situations can cause ulcers? All of the above and more, but really it's down to stress. Um, and a lot of those stresses inadvertently we put put on horses. So I mentioned that horses are grazing animals. They're meant to be continually grazing and that continuous chewing and swallowing of food helps to mitigate naturally the acid in the stomach. That's how it's supposed to work. But we meal feed horses because we all have to work to afford right. these graceful animals and going to shows, et cetera. And they, so they have to fit into our schedule. Um, we meal feed them hay also. And most of our horses don't have access to grazing, so they can't self-regulate that acid. Um, and you've also got to realize as food passes through the digestive system, it can be out of the stomach as little as 30 minutes after they took that last bite. So food can pass through the stomach really, really quickly. And we've we've looked at studies where um, they've actually put a little pH meter down into the horse's stomach and looked at how quickly it takes for that acid to go from that safe region between the four and the seven to down between a one and a two. It really only takes as little as an hour of uh, horses having nothing to eat. So I don't like to see horses without something to chew on for more than, say, two to four hours because any longer than that and we start to see reddening of the stomach lining, which is inflammation, and that leads to gastric ulcers. So um, that's when, you know, in our management strategies, we have to try to stretch out the length of time that they're chewing, but also things like high grain diets that are a necessity right. in our performance world because they need a lot of calories to maintain their energy levels, et cetera. Those can increase the acidity in the gut. So it's multifactorial, but it's perfect storm, really. Everything we right. do to horses stresses them. And over 90% of horses have gastric ulcers. It's probably the, the most prevalent problem in horses. So in, in a situation where um, and this is just kind of an example, obviously, just like you mentioned, there are so many ways, so many situations where horses can get ulcers, but let's say, and maybe this is also like perfect storm type of situation, but you talked about the importance of having some sort of feed in their stomach, at least every two to four hours or so. Let's say we're taking the horse on a, a trip and you're trailering the horse, which for one, that can sometimes be stressful for some horses. And then two, often if a trip is, is a long period of time, I mean, would this be an ideal situation where, I mean, you probably feed in the trailer, but give them alfalfa before or during? Is that something that would be beneficial in a situation like that? Because lots of people trailer their horses whenever they go on trips or, you know, to competitions or whatever. Absolutely. And so there's lots of different ways that you can mitigate gastric ulcers. But if we look at a, a more natural way by using a certain type of forage, which is good for horses anyway, so alfalfa, then certainly prior to the stressful event, you can give them alfalfa, whether it be long stem hay or cubes or pellets. Uh, an example 
with a lot of the racehorses that we work with is prior to exercise, um, while they're getting tacked up, we will give them alfalfa pellets to chew on. That gives them instantaneous buffering to the stomach, but it also acts as a physical mat that sits on that acid. So, you know, we certainly should be stopping and, and letting horses drink and, and walk around several times yeah. when you're doing long hauling and you should certainly be feeding them alfalfa at those meals. But I would also caution people, if your horse is not adjusted to eating alfalfa and he's used to eating a grass hay and then right. you go on a trip and think, oh, I'm just going to give him some alfalfa today, then that's a rapid feeding change and he'll most likely get diarrhea and then you'll be mad at me for recommending it. So <laughs> always adjust your horses. Yeah. It's all very situational. Yeah, we have to be very careful with the decisions that we make and take everything into account. But if you know, you know ahead of time that you're going to right. be taking your horse on trailer trips. So um, just get them used to it at home. Yeah, transition them into it a little bit. It's a great answer. Um, going to the next question, this one will probably be kind of a part one, part two. But does too much alfalfa cause uroliths? And I'd like you to define what uroliths are for people that don't know, and then also enterolists, because that might be confusing for some as well. Yeah. You know, the two words are so similar, and I've heard sometimes people get confused and they're really talking about enteroliths, but they're using the term uroliths. But um, uroliths, think of the way that word is broken up. Uro, it's a urinary, mm -hmm. a bladder stone, and an enterolith is in the enteric system or the colon. So your enteroliths are in the intestines of the horse, but a urolith is a bladder stone. Both of them are caused by a mass that then minerals will deposit around. Typically, though, in a urolith, which is a bladder stone, it will be maybe mm -hmm. the horse had a bladder infection and there was some excess cells sloughed off the wall of the bladder and they were sitting in the in the bladder. And then those minerals can kind of form around that little clump of these dead cells and then cause bladder okay. stones that way. With an enterolith, it's typically something that they've ingested, be it a small stick or rock or a piece of twine. And then those minerals will build up and build up around that and cause a big stone that then right. it causes pain. I know of a, a friend of mine's horse where it was actually pressing oh. up onto the spinal cord and causing neurological problems. So there's a whole slew of different symptoms that you might see, but definitely painful um, sometimes these will pass if they're small enough, but if they get large enough, then they have to be kind of ablated. So exploded and then they can be flushed out. Right. You got to have your veterinarian come and handle that for you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so the original question was about uroliths. So and alfalfa. Yeah. How does, how does alfalfa relate to that? Alfalfa kind of gets thrown in as the bad guy when we have enteroliths or uroliths. Um, because it is high in calcium and phosphorus, your mineral content. And so it kind of gets a bad rap. Well, okay, if it's minerals that are depositing around these cells or this debris, then don't feed alfalfa. But, you know, the West Coast down in California, especially, is is very prevalent. But it's also that their soils and their water is really high in mineral content as well. So it's not necessarily right. just the alfalfa that's causing it. It's kind of the whole management plan. With uroliths especially, if you're in an area or you've had a horse that has had them in the past, um, even small ones, and you know that they're probably going to be a repeat offender, 
that would be a horse that I would be making sure that they were drinking plenty of water every day. And maybe you're even putting a tablespoon of salt in their feed. Just force the issue and make sure that they're they're drinking a lot. Um, there are other remedies like trying to acidify the urine so that these basic salts won't build up. You know, some people will add okay. an apple cider vinegar. Some swear by it. Some say there's not enough research, but ultimately we know that we can keep the urine dilute by making sure they drink a lot of water. Keep them hydrated and water passing through. Good. Yeah. And and yes, if you have a horse that has had a bladder stone before, then you're probably likely to steer away from alfalfa and use another forage source that's, you know, high quality and high in nutritional value, but maybe not as high in calcium. Okay. And the next question, if a horse is prone to laminitis, should he be fed alfalfa or Bermuda hay or a combination of both? Texans are so anti-alfalfa. And this is not me saying this. This is something that somebody said who wrote in. And so this is not anything to say that all Texans don't like alfalfa, but obviously they probably know quite a few people that either where they live there, they're just not fans of alfalfa for whatever reason. That's funny because I could, I would have probably said based on the um, Texan communities that I work with, equine communities, that they're fans of alfalfa. So it just depends on the group that you're with. And sometimes it's kind of discipline specific as to whether people gravitate one way or another. I work with a lot of uh, the Western disciplines and halter horses and they swear by alfalfa. And if you go to California and you don't like alfalfa, then I don't know what your horses are going to eat because a lot of people feed alfalfa. But anyway, when it comes to laminitis, um, urolis, antralis, any disorder, don't lump all horses in together. Find what is best for your horse, for your budget, for your area of the country and go with that. Um, don't poo-poo something just because, you know, it may not right. be commonplace in that area. But if we look at laminitis and what would be the best for your horse with laminitis, the first question you have to ask before you decide what you're going to feed them is, is your horse underweight or overweight? Because that dictates what we can use. So we know that we have to, no matter what, we have to use a low sugar and starch forage for these horses as the basis of their diet. Now that can be a grass hay, but we know that alfalfa, because of the way that it stores its its energy units, it stores its energy, its starch. We discussed in the earlier podcast, part one, that it's self-limiting. So it's like a gas tank of a truck. There's only so much space that they can fill up with energy before they have to use it. And so we know that alfalfa is typically lower in sugars and starches combined than most grass hays. Um, that being said, if you have a fat laminitic pony, then the alf- alfalfa mm-hmm. is going to make them fatter. And whilst it's not offering sugars and starches that are going to be detrimental to that pony, it's going to make it fatter. Obesity is a a key player in laminitis. So it wouldn't be ideal in that situation. Um, If we have that fat laminitic pony, then we're going to look for a grass hay and because they're going to be lower in calories. But you can't, I can't say blanket statement, Timothy is always less than orchard or orchard is less than this. What I can say is your warm season grasses, like your Bermuda grass, they also store their energy Mm -hmm. more as starch than sugars. And they don't typically store as much non-structural carbohydrate as a cool season grass like Timothy or orchard grass. There is a particular warm season grass called teff, uh, which has been grown in 
put into hay products and made hay. And it is a typically very low carbohydrate, low sugar and starch hay, um, well as low calorie. And it can be a really ideal source for people. But unless you're buying a branded product, a product in a bag that has a guaranteed analysis, and you're just buying a bale from your local producer, best bet is if you've got a horse with laminitis, you need to get everything, every forage product that it eats, you need to test it. You need to send it away to a laboratory like Equianalytical and get a carbohydrate test because it'll save you in the long run. Right. And I think that's important to remember. Obviously, we have tendencies for the different types of hay, whether it be the legume type hays or the grass type hays. Yes, they all kind of have around this certain standard that we look at and see when we get those um, those hays tested. But you know, you also have to remember, it really depends on the person growing the hay as well. um, Because so much, I think more than some people realize so much goes into the management in that growth process and doing XYZ over ABC is going to change the makeup of the end product, depending on the part of the country that you're in or your management practices when you're growing it. So yeah, definitely without a guaranteed analysis, testing is is really important, especially with those ones that need those limiting sugars and starches like that, because that could be a sure. yeah. it come to life or death for them in suffering situations, you know. So I think it's important that we make sure that we take care of our animals in that way. Absolutely. Another thing it made me think about was something I was reading about the other day um, was actually on founder So alfalfa is low in sugars and starches in general, but how does that impact horses that can founder? Can that be a a bad thing for them to have alfalfa or a good thing? So founder and laminitis, a lot of people use those terms synonymously. Laminitis though is, so if you look at the structure of the hoof, you've got the outer hoof Mm -hmm. wall and then you've got the coffin bone as the last bone in the horse's hoof. And there are these finger-like structures that mm-hmm. kind of hold everything together, and they're called laminae. And they in, there's some that come off the hoof wall, some off that come off that kind of coffin bone structure, and they interlock together and hold everything together. And laminitis with the time with itis on the end of anything, it's just inflammation. So it starts out with just inflammation, and then it can become chronic when those little laminae will die. And you've probably heard, well, this horse had certain degree of rotation in its coffin bone. That's because those little finger-like structures have died. They've lost their strength. And now that coffin bone is rotating downwards. And worst case scenario would go through the sole of the foot. And at that point, that's typically when people would call it founder. Um, So same thing. So it's kind of more of just the extreme situation of laminitis then when it gets to that point. Sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Let's see. Another question that we had come through, do alfalfa cubes have the same calming effects as magnesium? Was told that dot, dot, dot. Mm, No, no. Um, You know, what I'll say about calming supplements in general is, this is just my, me on my little soapbox. Um, before you reach for a calming supplement, try to get to the root cause of, is it really behavioral or is it a pain response? Because I think nine times out of 10, most horses change their behavior as a pain response, be it musculoskeletal or you know gut pain. But if your horse truly has a behavioral issue, then 
you know, you, you may reach towards calming supplements that typically have magnesium or threonine in them. But alfalfa, no, <laughs> it, it certainly in my world, I have never heard alfalfa having right. calming effects. I have more people complain that it made their horses hot. And, and, and a right. myth we discussed in part one was about the protein. And, you know, it's not the protein that might make a horse hot, right. but the extra calories that that horse is, you know, not dealing with well. So no, I would say uh, alfalfa does not have the calming effects of magnesium. If you saw your horse calm when it ate alfalfa, chances are it probably had gastric ulcers and it feels better. Oh yeah, that's interesting. Reminds me of the conversation we were just having earlier about how important it is to sometimes maybe take a look at the cues that our horses are trying to give us rather than just throw something at them that might be maybe a short-term fix or we think it's a short-term fix, but really it's not a long-term fix. And so since they can't talk to us directly in the same language that we're speaking, they tell us in their body language and in other ways. You know, they tell us so much, but sometimes we're just not open to listening. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Uh, next question. Should I feed alfalfa or add some alfalfa in the winter to keep horses warmer and so they don't lose weight? Um, you know, alfalfa is pretty digestible. And so when it comes to creating heat by via the bacteria in the hindgut, then it may not create as much heat as say, uh, local grass hay, a more stemmy grass hay. But as far as the maintaining body weight, absolutely. Alfalfa has more calories in it. So it's going to help maintain body weight better than a local grass hay. Good. Okay. Do you need to give supplements to balance alfalfa when you feed it? You need to give something about, you need to balance the diet when you're feeding any forage. Unfortunately, there's just no hay or grass that is 100% balanced for our horses. We know that pretty much everywhere except the Dakotas, you're going to be deficient in selenium. Um, we're deficient in copper and zinc in most places. So we need to balance it with those basic uh, minerals. But we do know that alfalfa is pretty high in calcium and protein. So you'll look at certain feed companies when they're creating a ration balancer, for example. And if they're creating one to complement alfalfa, it will be slightly lower in calcium. It'll be a little higher in phosphorus and it will be a little lower in protein because we can rely mm -hmm. on the hay for supplying those. While alfalfa or any forage should be the basis to a diet, um, we do know that we need to add at least a vitamin mineral supplement to balance it out. Okay. And so for maybe like a, a new horse owner that um, maybe they're not familiar with this or, you know, what they would need to supplement, like what their horse needs. I mean, what advice, I guess, could you give them? Because I mean, you just mentioned how it really is dependent on where in the country you are, that will decide what that area is maybe more deficient in, in general. And so maybe just working with their veterinarian or an equine nutritionist, or you mentioned before how our Stanley customers have access to, to you and Dr. Duran and being able to reach out to you guys. But what, what advice could you give to some new horse owners trying to figure out how to balance it? If you're a new horse owner, you have to put a good team in place, right? You're going to, you're going to find yourself a veterinarian. You're going to find yourself a farrier. You're going to find yourself somebody that can do dental work. And hopefully you can build a relationship um, from those. You can get recommended a good 
feed that you're going to feed. Uh, if you're listening onto this podcast and you've tried the Stanley Hay, then Katie's absolutely correct. You get access to Dr. Duran and myself and we can help you, advise you on my, what might be the best feed and forage program for your horse. But you really don't have to be an expert on everything. You need to put a good team in place and you need to listen mm-hmm. to them. And trust them. Yeah, because I've come here across so many people that I'm seeing that they're just, they're so excited and they really want to get into owning a horse. And Dr. Cubitt, you probably remember what this is like just being as a little girl and it's just your dream to be able to work with and have horses. And so there's there's these parents that are like, my daughter just really wants to, we're working on trying to, to learn more about horses and prepare ourselves and make sure that we put a budget together to be able to afford what what's going to be needed to properly care for a horse. And so all of that comes into play with it. And so I think it's, it's good that we have a trustworthy team that we can work with when we have our horses. Absolutely. And you can just see from podcast one and two in this series, you've searched online, you've kind of found all of these myths just by going on the internet. And it's amazing how kind of out of control you can get and how if you were just if you wanted to get a new horse and you thought, okay, I'm going to do my research, I'm going to go online and I'm going to mm-hmm. research the best vets and the best hoof care and everything, you're going to get off right. and just want to tear your hair out because there's just so much information available. that's very hard to sift through it. Yeah, it's overwhelming too. Well, we're here to support anybody who's wanting to own horses or get into horses. It's um, it's a pretty special bond that you can have with horses. I, th- I think, especially with youth growing up and having that relationship with horses, it's it's pretty impactful. I think on their lives. So. Let's see. Next question that we're going to go with. If my horse is only fed alfalfa cubes when hauled to trail ride, is that a problem? He normally eats grass, hay, and vitamin mineral. You touched on this before a little bit, but yeah, let's talk about it again. Yeah, I touched on this before that we wouldn't want to make a rapid feeding change. So in this scenario, if this person contacted me directly, I would say, let's try. He can be on a base diet of grass, hay, and a vitamin mineral during the week. But I would add in, say, a pound of alfalfa during the week so that he is more accustomed to that. And then on the weekends when you trail ride, there are grass pellet varieties that I know, um, you know, certain areas of the country and certain national parks or whatever you're going to ride in require that you have weed-free products that you're going to take in. So there's certainly options available that you could maintain him on a still a grass alfalfa diet when you trail ride him. But at the very least, let's incorporate some alfalfa during the week as well. So it's not so much of a shock to the system. Right. Okay. Next question. Is alfalfa okay for horses with HYPP? <laughs> so most of our listeners uh, may or may not know what HYPP it is, uh, a genetic disorder called hyperkalemic periodic paralysis. And it stemmed from the impressive quarter horse stallion. And it's been passed down uh, through his lineage. So if your horse had any of the genetics from that stallion, then he might be a carrier or he might display this genetic trait. And really what they can't in their diet, you need to keep the potassium content 
low, less than in the total diet, less than 1.1%. And so what happens with these horses is they can, they'll twitch and they might have seizures as a result of having too much potassium in their diet. And okay, if you think about how muscles contract and relax, contract and relax, it's these electrical signals that kind of go in and out of the cells that cause those muscles to contract and relax. And think about it like um, gates are supposed to be opened and closed, opened and closed. And when you open certain electrical particles like calcium, potassium, electrolytes flow out of the cell or into the cell, out of the cell, into the cell. And when you close the gate, they're not allowed to go in and out anymore. And so we stop that contraction. But with these horses, what's happened is somebody's just left the gate cracked open. And so those electrolytes are just leaking, particularly potassium, leaking in and out okay. of the cell. And so it's just constantly twitching, constantly firing, but just a little bit. Um, and so that's where we see this twitching. You'll see it along the flank. And worst case scenario with these horses is that they'll have a seizure and they'll, you know, the heart right. is a very, very big muscle. And so if that muscle starts twitching out of control. Then, you know, that's absolutely terrible. So Going back to, is alfalfa okay for these horses? Alfalfa is high in potassium. So no, you do not want to feed alfalfa to horses with HYPP. Okay. And so I know we're talking about alfalfa, but since we mentioned, no, it's not okay. Briefly want to touch on what type of hay would be more ideal for an HYPP horse? Any grass hay um, would be much. Now, if you're in an, uh, you know, a lot of these horses are Western disciplined horses. And so they're probably working pretty heavily. And so they gravitate towards the alfalfa because it's going to put a really nice mm-hmm. top line on them, help the muscle, good protein, calories, et cetera. So you want to look for a grass hay alternative that is also going to be really high quality. Um, that's going to carry a decent protein content and calorie content as well without the potassium. Okay. So then if we had a horse that had HYPP that obviously cannot eat alfalfa, but maybe they also, I mean, you said that some of these are, they're looking for some of these other things that they're needing to, to be in the diet for them. But what if they had also either ulcers or indicators of ulcers? What other things could a horse with HYPP maybe consume in addition to the grass hay that would be helpful to where they would get from alfalfa, but they're not able to get it because they can't consume alfalfa. So now it comes down to the management of actually feeding the forage. So those horses would definitely need to be on a more consistent feeding protocol. Um, We're going to look for feeds that are forage-based, fiber-based. You know, there's other super fibers like beet pulp and soy holes that could make up that performance feed for them, higher fat content. But also, you know, just the actual act of feeding the horse. This is a horse that I would want to make sure that they were eating small meals often and they they had hay in front of them, their grass hay all the time. Okay. Those are some good management tips for people who may have horses with HYPP. So thank you. Uh, let's see, getting into the next question. What is the best form of alfalfa to feed when you don't have access to baled, um, chopped and bagged cubes or pellets? Um, then it comes down to, again, the horse that you're feeding. You know, if we have a senior geriatric horse that has really poor teeth, then we have to go to the pellet because we can soak it and make a mash out of it. 
But if you think about chewing, mm-hmm. and we want to encourage chewing because uh, the more the horse chews, the more saliva they produce. And we've already discussed that saliva is really good and it buffers the stomach. The longer the stem is, right. then the more chews it will take. So if we rank them based on chewing and saliva production, you would go from long stem, regular baled hay, then chopped, then cubed, then pelleted, would go in that order as far as the amount of chews that they're going to do. But, you know, then it comes down to um, we've always discussed that there's always so many other decisions that go into feeding horses. And so maybe the there's not a huge storage area. So a 50-pound sack of alfalfa pellets is more convenient to store in the, the feed room than, uh, you know, a 20-pound bag of cubes or a you know 30-pound bag of right. chopped forage or something like that. So. Um, depends on what you're feeding and the other constraints. But when it comes down to just pure like chewing, replicating hay, chopped is going to cause uh, right, more right. chewing and more okay. saliva production. Why does alfalfa make my horse have diarrhea? Should you feed to horses that are not being worked hard? So that almost two-part question there. You know, again, two-part question here. And if you've got a fat horse that's not being worked and he's at maintenance, then no, he doesn't need alfalfa because he's not going right. to need the extra mm-hmm. calories and protein. Um, typically, when horses get diarrhea on alfalfa, it's that we've rapidly introduced it and we think, oh, it's hay. And I was feeding hay before, but we know that horses are very sensitive to the smallest things that change in their diet, be it a change in the ingredients because you're not feeding a fixed formula or changing the hay type. We've seen research that just changing from spring grass to hay and back can definitely cause the microbiome in the hindgut to get upset and that you're going to see that as diarrhea in the horse. Um, The other thing is I usually prefer because of the microbiome and that's the bug, all the microbial community in the hindgut of the horse, I prefer to feed a variety of different fiber types because that is what how that microbial community thrives on variety and diversity. So I there are very few cases where I actually mm-hmm. say feed 100% alfalfa. I want people to feed alfalfa and some some good quality grass hay, mix it um, just to really feed that microbiome. But again, alfalfa by itself shouldn't just cause diarrhea unless there are other factors. So it could be more of a situation where if they weren't eating alfalfa the, and then you just threw some in there because maybe you ran out of grass or whatever and then you're like, yeah, oh, rapidly yeah. introduced right. or we've already got some gut health issues and now we need to really increase the microbial diversity and this is just kind of a monoculture that we put in there. So um, it's mm-hmm. more digestible than some other hays and um, we know that foragers have water holding capacity capacity and so putting a variety of forages in there will increase water hold- holding capacity because mm-hmm. diarrhea is just excess water being excreted. And the microbiome, I know we've talked about this before, but if somebody's just listening in on this episode, that is actually what's breaking down the feed that's coming through. That's fermenting the the forages, correct? Right. Okay. This um, is an interesting question that I hadn't heard or a comment that I hadn't heard about before, but I wanted you to talk a little bit about it with us. Um, I was told alfalfa cubes are made with the stems of the plant. Not sure if that has good nutrients in it. You know, I won't speak to any other company, whether they do or don't. I'll just speak to Stanley Forage. And there we harvest hay and the the same hay that gets utilized in the fantastic quality 
bales, compressed bales, gets chopped and turned into the chopped forage we sell or um, compressed into the cubes or ground and made into the pellets. So no, we, we're not separating out the portions of the plant and using stems for cubes and leaves for this. The whole product, the whole plant is harvested and ground down to be made into cubes or pellets. And that shows, I feel like, in the guaranteed analysis, because which is something that legally we have to put on our products and everything, right? Because if there was just stems in there, how would that impact, out of curiosity, if there was just stems in any type of cube, how would that impact the nutrient analysis on those cubes? You're going to have a really, really high non-digestible fiber content so your ADF and NDF values would be really, really high. They're measures of fiber content. And the stem, that's really what holds the plant up. And so mm -hmm. the more stem, the more of that non-digestible fiber. And the leaves do contain a, a, a more of that digestible fiber as well as protein and nutrients. So Right, and the yeah. protein too. That's what I was thinking. So great. Um, thanks for, for clearing that up. Um, and then we'll just touch on one last question I think that we have today, but I've heard that Frisians have issues with alfalfa. Is that true? And if not alfalfa, what can I feed them? You know, again, it would go back to, I don't think we lump all Frisians in to say no Frisian can eat alfalfa. I think within breed, um, there's so much variation and what is correct for your horse. So for Frisian pony, warm blood, you know, whatever the breed is, choose the forage that is correct for your particular horse mm -hmm. based on its body weight, based on its exercise level, based on its age. All of those factors will go into why I choose a forage for a particular horse and not necessarily its breed. Okay. So that, that question is kind of hard for us to be able to answer, you know, a blanketed statement like that. Just like I think we've talked a little bit already but um, when it comes to sometimes when you ask questions in the Facebook group communities or anything like that, people will often come back with answers before asking questions. And I think that's what makes working with a nutritionist and your veterinarian so good is they're probably always going to be asking follow-up questions before they actually give you an answer because there's so much more that goes into feeding horses or, I mean, any livestock for that matter, beyond that one question that people often ask originally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's so many other things that I want to ask people. And so definitely contacting the Stanley kind of information line is an easier way to ask your question. Then you'll get direct, direct access to myself or one of the other gals in the office, and um, we can have a more productive conversation about your particular horse. Mm -hmm. And that kind of just leads me into us just asking our listeners to share our podcast with your friends or, you know, your fellow horse owners. Once we start getting into other species, goats, chickens, all of them, if you're in a Facebook group or if you're on a discussion forum and they ask questions, feel free to throw some of our content in there just because we heavily rely on Dr. Cubit and Dr. Duran to give us the good um, nutritional information that we need to be sharing. And so if you remember hearing one of our episodes where we talked about alfalfa and somebody says something like that, especially if they're like a new horse owner, throw that in there, let them know, hey, go check out Stanley Beyond the Barn podcast, you can give them a link to our podcast page, which is just stanleyforage.com 
forward slash podcast. And if you remember the episode, throw that in there too. It might answer their question that they're asking, but if not, it might be a good lead in for them to, to really seek out some good information that will help give them answers to what they're looking for. And more than just that short, quick question that they had there, you really should always be asking more follow-up questions to be able to answer the original question. So share our information with them. We'd love to have you guys help out your friends and your family that also own horses. And we all have the best of intentions and want others to succeed with owning animals or even getting started, you know, as first time horse owners. And this is I feel like a good way to do it helping with sharing some good content from trustworthy um, nutritionists and veterinarians and you know, any of our experts that have really looked and done the research and their science to back it. That's a good way for us to help them get off on the right foot and have a good healthy ownership of their animals. So you know, as we kind of move forward on this, these last two episodes have been really good because we've really gotten some good questions that have come in from horse owners and our listeners and some of our Stanley customers. And so I just want to make sure that you guys know that there are no dumb questions when it comes to any of this stuff. So don't feel like you would rather not have people hear what you're asking versus getting the right answer. When we go over these, we're not going to use your name. And if you're not comfortable with putting it, you know, when we do a call out on Facebook, if you're not comfortable putting in the comments section, don't do that. You can send us a message. You can email us at podcast at stanleyforage.com. The most important thing for us is we're here to help everyone keep their animals healthy. And that's our goal with this. And we're all here to learn and work as a team. So Dr. Cubit, I want to thank you for being on here with me again today. I'm really enjoying these podcast episodes that we've been recording lately. It's been a lot of fun. Certainly has been. It's great to hear what questions people have and be able to feel like we're directly answering those questions. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for being on today and we'll see you on the next episode. Look forward to it. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Beyond the Barn podcast by Stanley Forage. We'd love for you to share our podcast with your favorite people. And subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite listening platform. Until next time, keep your cinch tight and don't forget to turn off the water. <laughs>